0: Good morning. Um, Usually I get up a little earlier than you guys probably, especially if you came to the 1130 service. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay. But I am in charge of making sure things are set up in here and they're ready for you guys when you get here. Well, about two months ago, I got up very early and uh, I went to take a shower and I noticed I had no hot water. So I go outside and I'm like, what's going on here? It's got some problems. And I notice that like only half the lights are working, like half the stuff is operating. So I go to the fuse box and I look at the panel and everything seems okay. So then I walk outside, I'm like, this is weird, something's going on, like aliens like attacking. And I walk outside, there's the meter and the meter is all brown inside. It's like all clouded and fried. And I'm like, oh, great. So. There's nothing I can do about it. I go to work uh, or I come here to church and then I, at the end of the church, when I'm done, I go back and I call FPL and they come in, out to the thing and I said, listen, I think the meter's fried. So he comes over and he looks, he's like, yeah, sure enough. He pulls it out and he goes, I come to put a new one in and he looks and he goes, I can't put a new one in though. You've got like two cables coming in and one of them is totally fried. It's like melted and everything because it's old aluminum. He's like, look at this. This is How old is this, all your equipment out here? Because my house was like built in 61. It's the original equipment. So he's like, listen, you've got you've to get this whole thing replaced, and then we can come out and put a meter. So he leaves with the meter. So I call an electrician, and then the, the next day, I kind of know him, so he's, he's friendly to me. He's telling me all this stuff, and he's like, listen... You do. You got to replace everything. We don't have parts to fix this thing. It's too old. So we need to replace this box, and this is not code anymore. We have to shoot the pole up through your roof, and then bring those cabling in, and all this other stuff. And he says it's going to cost you like fifteen hundred dollars. And he was giving me a break, you know. And I'm like, we got to pull a permit. We got to do this. And I'm like, well, okay. Just listen. Just do what you got to do because I need I need a, cold, a hot shower, and I need to have my wife be able to use the oven because we got to eat. So. He changes everything out, he gets the permit, the FPL guy finally comes, he puts in the new meter, and I'm thinking, okay, that's that. Everything works fine, we're going to be great. In fact, we'll probably work even a little bit better, because if we were having like a drain or a problem, we should have like a really good bill. So anyway, the bill comes like a few weeks later, and around summertime, we have a small house, our bill is roughly $200, give or take, a little less, a little more, right? So I'm expecting a pretty low bill. I open up the thing. It's $634.17. I'm like, this is like for a small mansion. This can't be right. I'm like, this cannot be right. And I go and I look at some of my records. And that was all I've ever paid. The max was maybe $250. i am like, how can it be 600 So I call FPL and I said, you know, I'm a little frustrated here because like I have this huge bill. Can you help me out here. And tell me what's going on. He goes, well, we'll send a guy out there and he'll look at it and evaluate your home and see your, all your energy use. So he comes on out and he says, yeah, you're not using that much. And, but there's this giant bill. And he's like, well, what can we do about the bill? And he goes, well, it seems to be running right. What can we do? And I, I'm like, he's like, well, we can come take the meter, test it. And if it tests bad, I can kind of prorate you. But if it tests good, there's nothing I can do. You owe 600 bucks. I'm like, that's it? That's all you can do. So here we are waiting to see if we're going to have to pay this exorbitant bill. And I'm like, That's, that doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair that I have to pay this. I feel ripped off, right? I mean, I paid for the electrician to come. We did the, the, the perm, permit. We did everything right. I replaced the whole thing. I should be having a lower bill. I should be getting different results. I mean, wouldn't you feel that way? You guys? Okay. That's how we feel a lot of times. Listen, at church, at Calvary Fellowship, Johnny Lopez, you may know him. He's our resident Mac computer repair guy. So Bob loves Macs. That's what we got. We all have Macs. And so when they go bad, we give them to Johnny. And Johnny opens them up and he looks at it. He determines what the faulty problem is. He says this part's bad. He orders the part. He puts the part in. And then the moment of truth, he turns it on and bam, it works better than it did before, right? Or it worked better than it was when it was, not, when it was all messed up. And that's what happens. We expect it to be different. We expect if he's going to repair. It's going to be different. And that's the same way when it comes to life. When we uh, fix something, we expect it to perform better than it just was performing. Right? We call up. Something's gone wrong. You call up or you, the repairman and he comes. Or you drop it off someplace. And they replace the guts or something inside. And then bam, it works better. Right? That's what we expect out of life. When we change something from the inside, we expect to see an outward change. And this is the idea that we're going to talk about today, although we're not going to be talking about computers and uh, electric boxes, we're going to be talking about people. So if you're joining us for the first time, we're in the middle of a series called Inside Out, and it's a study of the book of Romans. And the book of Romans is like the best book when it co- talks about transformation, so we're going to be in chapter 13, so if you want to get ahead, you could get your, you can open up there. But for the first 10 chapters, Paul's been telling us and explaining how a person is made right with God. You see, everyone has sinned no matter who you are. And because of that, no one is righteous before God. You know, righteousness cannot come from keeping the law, we're told, because we've all fallen short. We've all blown it. Salvation comes through faith in the One who made it possible. By believing in Jesus, it tells us, and Paul has told us, that we believe in Jesus, that He came, died for our sins, it is then, when we put our faith in Him, that God says, you are made righteous. That's what the Bible says. Not just in Romans, but everywhere. But we generally have it the other way around. You see, we tend to think, the better I am right? The more good I do, the more worthy I am to be saved. And maybe sometimes we articulate it or you've heard it said like this. Well, as soon as I straighten out my life, then I can come to God, right? As soon as I start doing the good works, if I start doing things right, then I'll be worthy to come to God as if we can actually make ourselves good enough. You see, we think this works first and then salvation, But Paul is telling us something different. He says it's salvation first, and then come the works. You see, when we truly accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, something really interesting happens inside of you and me. We're transformed. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians. Listen to how he, he phrases it. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He says that you have become new when you receive Jesus Christ. See, because now there's the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And he has made your spirit come to life. It's like being fixed, right? It's like being changed on the inside. You have a new inside. And if we have a new inside and you've been changed and fixed on the inside, what should we expect on the outside, we expect to see a difference. You see, that's exactly what Paul had said earlier in Romans. Look at this verse in your outline. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as our, uh, were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. The reaction to being made new on the inside is a change on the outside. That's what he's saying. There's this newness of life. We should see in a person that has been changed by God this new walk, this newness, this change. And this is the important idea for today. We don't do good works for the sake of salvation. That's not why we do them. We just talked about that. We do works because we are saved. We're not obligated to keep the law. You know that if you've received Jesus Christ, you're actually not obligated to keep the law. But we do it because we've had an encounter with the living God. It's a response to His love toward us, that we would love Him, that we would want to be obedient. It's that way with any relationship that we have and someone that we love. We want to please them. We want to do what's right. We want to keep that relationship. Let me put it this way. Take out your outlines for a minute. And right there, I want you to do the first fill-in. This is the idea for today. A life that has been truly changed will live a changed life. A life that has been truly changed will live a changed life. You see, these final chapters are a response from Paul of what we've just learned through the first 11 chapters. And last week, Pastor Mark talked about the response to being forgiven. Then we forgive others. And now Paul is saying, a person that has been changed on the inside. Now here in chapter 13, this is what we can expect to see out of their lives. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, Honor to whom honor. See, Paul's going to talk about in this chapter three things that a changed life looks like. And in your outline, the first one is this. A changed life is obedient to the laws of government. We just read it. A changed life is obedient to the laws of government. Now you might say, well, yeah, that that just totally makes sense. But Paul has a particular reason for emphasizing this. You see, there's certain things going on at that time in history. The Jewish people that he is writing to, the Christians, these Christian Jews, are in the middle of Rome. And Rome at that time controlled the whole world. That was the seat of world government. And there they are in that very city. And Israel had a tradition of their own self government. That's how they lived. And so now, this newfound right, their, fa- their rights to govern themselves have been taken away. So they observe Rome and Romans as oppressors. You know, they even still, even though they were governed by Rome, they still tried to keep their own semblance of authority. They had this group called the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees and these uh and the uh the name eludes me. (laughs) The scribes. They were like the lawyer, the scribes, and these other guys were like the religious leaders, and this group represented all all of Israel. And they would rule the people. Except the Sanhedrin had no real power. You guys remember the trial that Jesus went to? In front of the high priest? That was before the Sanhedrin. But they couldn't do anything with him, could they? And they had to go to who? Pilate. That's why they went to Pilate. Because they couldn't put him to death. They had no power to do anything. And here's this frustration there. They're living there. But also, the conditions where Rome were not very favorable to the Jews. A few years earlier, a previous emperor named Claudius had kicked all the Jews out of Rome because there was a dispute among the Jews. You see, at that time, Christianity was not considered Christianity. It was considered a sect of the Jews. And so this sect of the Jews, Christianity, is having a dispute with the other Jewish people because of this guy named Christus or Christ. That's what the the, uh, historian... Tacitus tells us that this dispute broke out because of Christ, Jesus Christ, and he gets mad and he goes, you're out of here. But then eventually they were let back into Rome. So now it's this kind of volatile state. The Jews are back in the middle of Rome. They don't really like who's above them, and they're kind of on shaky ground. You know? And so Paul's telling them, listen, I'm instructing you to obey the government so that people will not hate you, and that also when you obey... I tell you to do this even when it doesn't seem fair, he says. Listen, it's only six years after he writes this letter to the, Romans, the Jews in Romans. Only six years later, what's called the Great Fire breaks out in Rome and destroys almost the whole city. Now, historians tell us they believe Emperor Nero is actually the one who set the fire. Because he wanted to rebuild Rome. You see, as a Roman emperor, you were either known for like two things, either conquering in war or for building amazing buildings. And so he wasn't a world conqueror, so he was like, okay, I'm going to build. And yet he blamed it on the Christians. And when he blamed it on the Christians, the world looked at the Christians and said, wow, you're not cool. And this is when the first big persecution began in the world that we know as Christian, Christian, Christian Delma. You've heard about that before. You've heard about the persecutions that have occurred. But what does this tell us? What does all this tell us? Well, how do we apply that today? Well, Paul's saying, listen, you may not like the current administration in, in your country. Or you may not like the current Congress or people in certain seats. Or you may not like the certain judicial seats that are there. But he's saying, obey anyway. One reason of that is because God established government. That's what he was telling us here. See, God has, if you want to take note, God has established three divine institutions in the Bible. Three divine institutions. The first one is the church. And we see that in Acts chapter 2. The second one is marriage and family or family. We see that in Genesis chapter 2. You guys, I don't know if it's on the thing, but no, you're going to have to write it if you want. And then the third thing is government. God actually established human government. That happened in Genesis chapter 9 when Noah stepped off the ark. Listen to what it says when he gets off the ark. It says this, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. God's saying right here, He institutes capital punishment. I don't know how you feel about capital punishment, but this is God instituted it right here for all mankind. This isn't just particular to the Jews. You see, when they stepped off the ark, there was only eight of them. There was nobody else on the planet. So from them, all the other nations come. And from them, God established a government among men. He said, listen, this is the highest law. And this law is for order so that people don't just start killing each other back and forth so that there would be semblance of order and peace and justice where you're at. God established government and from this one, because, oh well, I'm not going to kill that guy because then I'm going to get killed, we don't do it. And from these, the other laws had stemmed. Listen, this idea was in every culture, not just in the Jews. We saw it in the Jews though. Maybe you've heard the, the term, the avenger of blood. We find that later in the books of Leviticus because there, what would happen is if this guy killed somebody, I, the, the next, the brother or the next of kin, was required to kill the guy who killed him. That was, and he was called the avenger of blood. So if someone kills your brother, you've got to go kill that guy. That was the way it worked. And in the book of Leviticus, God sets it up and he says, Listen, I'm going to do this because sometimes it's not very fair. So you're going to have seven cities of refuge. And if you kill somebody, and it's by accident or whatever, you can run to one of these cities of refuge. And if you get there before the avenger of blood gets you, then the, the, uh, then the judges and the rulers of that city will judge and decide if it was fair and what should happen. And that's where we see that. And God says, listen, I've established this because I want peace and to administer justice. And so when we go against governmental law, we're actually going against order. We're actually going against justice and peace. And that's what he was saying here. You see, if you're righteous, you should have no reason to fear the law. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but anybody been going down the highway a little bit too fast sometimes, right? I will confess, sometimes I'm doing that. And here's what happens a lot of times. If I'm speeding or I'm approaching the the speed limit, I know I probably should be going slower and all of a sudden I see some flashing lights, what's the first thing I do? I'm like, I immediately look at my speedometer. Was I speeding? Was I going over the speed limit? You know, I start feeling to see if I have my seatbelt on. I get rid of my phone. I hit the brakes, right? And my heart level goes boom, 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 right? It goes, it creases. And I'm looking around until he passes me like, oh gosh, it wasn't me. It wasn't me, right? Because when I am approaching breaking the law, then I should fear the law. Because it's for order's sake, but listen. When I'm driving down the road and I know I'm not going fast, I know everything's in order. I see those lights. I'm like, wonder what's going on. All right, and I just keep driving. It doesn't bother me one bit. Listen, he says, keep the law to avoid the wrath of government, but he also says do it for conscience' sake. For conscience' sake. Um, When I was uh, a little while back, I worked with a guy in a warehouse, and this guy he was kind of short and. I would talk with him a lot. Just you know, you work with people, you get to know them over time. And so at one point we were talking. And he goes, "Yeah, yeah, I was arrested. I've been in jail before." And he goes, "It was for robbing banks." I'm like, "Really?" And he goes, "Yeah." And he says, "Haven't you ever heard of the bank robber jockey?" I'm like, "What? The, no." And he's like, "The bank robber jockey." He goes, "Yeah." And he goes, "It's about the 1980s. There was a series of robberies he goes, I was the bank robber jockey. Because I was short, they were calling me the jockey." And I'm like, really? And he goes, yeah. Uh, Did you have a group of guys? He goes, no, I did it all by myself. I'm I'm like, I'm fascinated at this point. And I'm like, well, how did you rob banks? Like, how did that happen? And he goes, well, what would happen is I would take a cab to the bank and I would ask him to wait outside. And he goes, then I'd go in and I'd put a baseball cap on and sunglasses and I would have a note. And the note would say, I have a gun. Please fill up this bag and give it back to me. And they would. And then I would take the bag, get in the cab and leave. And half the time, the police would be coming, and they wouldn't even know it was him, because he's just driving off in a cab. He was telling me these stories. This one time, I did it in a limousine. I, just, I rented a limousine to do it. I'm like, You're robbing in style. You know, when we think about breaking the law, a lot of times we think like this, right? this huge thing, like robbing banks, right? right? Most of us probably haven't robbed a bank in here. Then again, I don't know about some of you people, but... You know, or big, these big things, we're, you know, we, we don't think on that level, do we? We think more on a little bit lower level. Let me tell you another story. When I was in college, and I had a girlfriend, we used to go visit her grandparents, and they were the sweetest couple, you know, and they were real nice, and they would, uh, You know, we'd share the day, we'd have a meal, and they would talk about the things they do. Now, they were retired, so retired people are not working, so they don't have a lot of stories. They have shopping stories. That's what they would tell us. And they would break out all the great deals that they had gotten to show us, you know, and she'd go back and carry out something. Look what I got here, you know, and look what I got here. And there'd be these old, like, plaid grandpa pants, and I'd be like, you know, I wouldn't have paid two bucks, but yeah, that was a good deal, (laughs) You know, so one time they break out this thing of silverware and they show it to me and they're like, you know, look at this set of silverware, it's really awesome. When we got this, like, so cheap, I'm like, oh really, what happened? They go, well, we were in the store and in this one area, there was all the silverware and there was some expensive silverware and there's some cheap silverware and other people were emptying the silverware from the expensive boxes into the cheaper ones and switching them and then going up with the cheap box that had the real silver, the good silverware and they would pay for it. And they said, and that's what we did. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, okay. I'm not going to report you to the police this time. No, I didn't. But you know, I mean, I mean, honestly, they were like up here. They dropped a little in my in my eyes. But that's the kind of thing that we do. The thing that everybody else is doing is acceptable, is okay, right? I mean, have you guys been watching the news? And we, you know, if you look over and see what's happening in England, these riots are breaking out everywhere. And they aren't even sure why these riots are breaking out, and if they're spreading across the country. It's like this mob mentality, and they're robbing people and committing vandalism, all these things. I saw this one video. Of this kid, he's like, laying, he's sitting on the ground, his back's on the wall, and he's like, blood is pouring out of his head. He's obviously dazed, and like, looks like these good Samaritans come over and they pick him up and they help him to his feet. And he's kind of like this, and you, he's just like this, you know. And, they, what they do is they help him up, kind of dust him off, and he's got a backpack on, they open up the backpack, steal all his junk and leave him there standing there, and he still has no idea what's going on. Like these guys, well, it's OK, Everybody else is doing it. I can do it. You know we do things we don't think of the bank, robber, but we do things that maybe seem a little bit more acceptable. And maybe we do things like switch price tags, right? We go, "Oh, ah, yeah, but if I just price, tag, if I just put this one over here, I could just pay a little less. Or maybe we buy and sell drugs. Yeah, but it's just a little. It's just for me and my friends. Or maybe we cut corners in our business because who's going to know? Who's going to know if this was illegal? They don't really know. Or maybe we declared deductions that we shouldn't be getting on our taxes. I mean, he spent you know quite a few sentences talking about how we should pay taxes. Here's what Paul says about obeying government. He says, A true inward change will result in a change in this area of our life, too. Listen, I'm going to give you this quickly. There's three reasons why not to obey government. Three reasons why not to obey government. Because some of you say, yeah, well, you know, what about these governments? And then if I I, they're asking me to to do something I shouldn't be doing, well, here's three reasons why you shouldn't. One, if you're asked to violate a command of God. If you're asked to violate a command of God. uh, Daniel was... They wanted to trap him. These, these other rulers wanted to get him in trouble. And so they made up a law that he couldn't pray to any other god but to, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. And so he opens up his window as he customarily did every single day. And he prayed to God anyway. And so they take him and they throw him in the lion's den. And if you haven't had, heard of that story, go ahead and read it. It's great. But he says, listen, I'm not going to do it because that's against the command of God. But also the second thing, when we're asked to commit an immoral act, an immoral act, you know, the regime of Hitler would be a great example of that, where he was slaughtering people for no reason at all. These weren't even refugees from war. I mean, they weren't even like soldiers. He was killing women and children, doing all sorts of things. And people went along with it. Even the churches of the day, even the Christian church did it at those days. And that would have been a prime time for them to disobey because it was an immoral act. And then three, when it goes against their Christian conscience, when it goes against your Christian conscience, A guy named Muhammad Ali, you may know who he is, but he was a Muslim, but he didn't believe that he should fight in war and go to Vietnam, and so he abstained from it. But he didn't run away. He didn't go somewhere and hide. He just said, no, I'm not going to. And he took the consequences. He was arrested and he was charged. And here's what I want to say about the third one. When it goes against Christian conscience, we can say, well, you know, I just feel that's what God says. The Holy Spirit told me this. Just say this. We could make up any rule we wanted maybe, but here's some things. If you feel like you shouldn't obey for a certain reason that God, your Christian conscience or God has told you, then number one, I think first you should seek counsel. I think you should also not counsel like psychiatry, but you should ask somebody else. But uh, don't break other laws in doing it. Like don't blow up a clinic because you're going to break one law. You're not you're going to break a different one or kill somebody or do something else. You don't do that. And also, um, you should be willing to accept the consequences of your disobedience. And if those things you're willing to do, then I would say you should do your Christian conscience. But let's move on. Paul not only says we should should see a change in your life when it comes to government, but we should see a change in number two, fill it out. A changed life demonstrates love for one another. A changed life demonstrates love for one another. Paul lists five of the Ten Commandments here. Let's read it. It says... On verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there are any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. You see, from the law, the law was divided. The Ten Commandments were actually kind of divided. The first four were about our relationship with God. And the other six were about our relationship with other people. You see, the first four were about whether it would tell me if I was loving God or not. He says things like, don't put other gods before me. Don't worship idols. Don't take my name in vain. If you're doing these things, it's at least showing that you love me. But he's saying all these other ones. Paul lists five of them. When you're doing these You're showing that you love others. That's how we know whether we're loving others or not. And then from these ten commandments, these are God's top ten, from them stem all the other laws that are in Leviticus and Exodus. Meaning we could determine them if we were just to follow these ten rules. But here's something interesting. Jesus boils it down even farther than the ten. He boils it down to two. Listen to what he says in Matthew. It says, Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. He says it comes down to love for God and love for others. That's what it all boils down to. And they're both related. Because if you love God and have been transformed, Paul's saying, then you will love others. Then you'll love others. If we have the right relationship with God, we will have a right relationship with other people. Now, John the Apostle, he really nails it when he says this. If a man says he loves God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Now, that that verse stings. You know why? Because I don't want to think of myself as a liar. And I don't want to think that I don't love God. But if that verse is true, I think I have a little problem. You know why? Because it's hard to love other people, isn't it? No matter who you are. Man, my brothers, when we were young, little guys like this, you know, my, we were three in a row, a year apart each. Year and a month, exactly, actually. And my brother Michael was the oldest, and Michael would always brag about how strong he was and all this stuff, and he'd say, I could take both of you on. So Lee and I, the younger two, we'd go, okay. And one time we just like wrestled him, and we got him down on the ground, and we had him on top of him, and we were like celebrating and laughing and joking, and I hadn't looked down. But when I did, I saw his face was like, he turned red and mad, you know, because he was like, he was mad that we had defeated him and we're celebrating One arm reaches up, grabs me by the the collar and slams me against the wall. My head cracks against the wall. I start crying like crazy. And I'm like, we were just having fun, you know, and tears are coming down. It's like even among brothers, even among brothers who love each other and are having fun, we still sometimes don't show love for one another, do we? It's so very hard. Listen, love for others will always be a challenge for you and me. Always will be. And Paul says this, he says, let it be a never-ending debt. The translation of this verse in the New International Version is kind of interesting. I put this one in your outline too. He says, listen to this. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. So, he's kind of boiling things down here in that you should love your neighbor as yourself because he goes, if you're like making a checklist, well, I haven't murdered, you know, I haven't stolen from them, I didn't take their wife, that's good, you know, and I don't really desire the things that they have, you know, I'm not bearing false witness, I'm not lying, I'm doing pretty good. He says, yeah, you're doing good, but you should be doing... It shouldn't just be the checklist. It should be about the heart. It should be about all your actions, and are you loving them the way you want to be loved? If we have a relationship with God, Paul's saying in that section, then we're going to have a right relationship with other people. Let's move on to verse 11. It says this, "...and do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy." but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Listen, the third thing is this. A changed life reflects good, not evil. A changed life reflects good, not evil. You know, as if Paul hadn't covered everything, right? I mean, obey the man's laws, the governmental laws, and be the right citizen. And then he says, and obey all the laws of God. Do those things too. And then he says, well... This thing, you should reflect a good character. You know? When I meet people, they sometimes don't know I'm a pastor. And so I don't usually tell people I'm a pastor because that kind of changes the conversation a lot of the times. Sometimes they ask me what I'll do. I'll say I work for a church. But I mean, I don't hide it. I will admit it. But I know this. Once I say that, it changes everything. And a lot of times I start talking to people and people will be like, they're just throwing out swears like crazy. You know what I'm saying? They're like, blah, 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 Bombs are flying everywhere. And they're like thinking you're one of the good old guys. And they just keep talking and talking and talking. And my character doesn't change. I keep remaining the same. And if they somehow find out a pastor, this definitely happens. Man, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to be swearing, you know. Like I can't, like pastors aren't allowed to hear these words or something. I'm like, I can hear them. but I don't want to do them. I mean, so they feel differently. You know what happens sometimes when I just perform, when I just act like someone who doesn't swear. Happened to me the other day. He person didn't even know who I was, but after a while, he started apologizing every time he swore. <laughs> this idea of this character, the section that Paul's talking about, is it's not the governmental laws, it's not the laws of God, but it's these things that fall through the cracks. It's not necessarily against man's laws, and it's kind of the gray areas of the Bible. We may characterize it with phrases like this, as long as we're both consenting adults, right? Or, yeah, I know what I'm doing is not that good for me, but it doesn't hurt anyone else, right? And these are character issues. It's things we do to escape the world and its problems. Maybe like getting drunk or excess drinking or indulging. What about when we lose our temper? I mean, where in the Bible does it say that? It says, be angry and don't sin. But, you know, I could probably yell a lot. I mean, I didn't do anything. You know? It's the things that we do to feed our flesh. Maybe like watching pornography. Where does it say that in here? You know, it doesn't really say that. So, I mean, you know, I'm still okay there with the law. Paul uses this interesting imagery here in these last verses of this nightlife contrasted with the daylife. He talks, it's like these Saturday night clubbers have just come home. They come home from being out all night long, doing all the things that they want to do. And he says, now you wake up and it's day. And what do you do in the day? You do normal things, you know. It, even to us, it would seem out of character for somebody to be drinking before noon, wouldn't it? I mean, it happens. But it just seems out of character. We hear that all the time. you really, you're drinking and it's not even noon yet. You know, we, that's what we think like. So there are things that we think are reserved for a certain time of darkness and certain time of day. And he says, act like those that are in the day, because you were created for the day. In Ephesians it tells us this, it says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He says, listen, you were created to walk in the good things, not in the dark things at night, but in the day and in the light, and the good stuff. That's why you were created. And He prepared them beforehand for us. Listen, if people are going to believe that an inward change took place in you, then they will expect to see an outward change, won't they? I mean, just like the thing that we go and take down and get it repaired, and they fix the inside, they fix the guts, they make it new, what do we expect? We expect it to be changed, to operate differently. And people are expecting the same thing of you and me. People believe that Christians should act differently, don't they? I've even heard people associate themselves with the Christians. Like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Because they think that's a good thing. It's a good person. I want to be known as a good person. So yes, I'm a Christian. They expect to see difference in the way that you and I live. You know, nothing is more frustrating, is it, than when you bring that thing down to the shop to get it repaired and you get it back and it doesn't work. Right? How frustrating is that? And it's the same is true when people look on our lives and they say, listen, this stuff was supposed to be fixed on the inside, but it's not doing anything different. It's not changed. And they get frustrated too. You see, we need to be people who reflect outward change because people are watching our lives. When we live in a way that doesn't reflect an inward change, we actually turn people off from God. There was a point in Israel's history where they were just kind of far from God. I mean, they were worshiping idols. They were breaking all sorts of God's laws. They were breaking man's laws and the other nation's laws. And their character was deplorable. And God says, listen, he sends this crazy prophet named Ezekiel. And if you've ever read the prophet Ezekiel, it's a good place to go. He just does these crazy things. God says, listen, I'm sending you and you go speak to them. And these are my words. Listen to what he says to the people of Israel. He says, God's message came to me, son of man. When the people of Israel lived in their land, they polluted it by the way they lived. I poured out my anger on them because of the polluted blood they poured out on the ground. And so I got thoroughly angry with them, polluting the country with their wanton murders and dirty gods. I kicked them out, exiled them to other countries. I sentenced them according to how they had lived. Wherever they went, they gave me a bad name. People said... These are God's people, but they got kicked off His land. I suffered much pain over my holy reputation, which the people of Israel blackened in every country they entered. These were the very people whose lifestyles were supposed to reflect God. And they're going into these other nations and becoming known by the other nations, all these people who are looking on and they're like, we don't want you. We don't want your God. We don't want anything to do with this. They blackened their name everywhere they went. I mean, what, one of the objections I get, I don't know if you get this too, but a lot of the objections I get to Christianity or to God and all this stuff is like, how can there be a God with so much evil in the world? Right? And I have to wonder, am I, are we contributing to that evil? Are we giving people the excuse to say, no, I'd, I don't believe in God. I don't want to believe in God. How can I believe in God? I, I'm kind of like a, a buff who likes to look at Earth's origins and the Bible and I love the book of Genesis and you know, evolution versus creationism. I'm creationist, just so you know. But I look and I go on the websites and I go to YouTube and I watch videos and this one YouTube video is a guy named Kent Hovind, and he's a, an apologetist and he's a creationist and he's got great arguments. He debates People, evolutionists, he debates uh, atheists and stuff. He does a great job. And as I, I like to go to the comments a lot to see what people are saying to see like, if they have a good objection and they'll be like, wow, I need to think about that. And as I'm reading down, it's like this guy goes, yeah, well, Kent Hovind is in jail anyway. I'm like, he is? So I Google Kent Hovind. I come to find out he's in jail for failure to pay his taxes for tax evasions for over $200,000. He's in jail for 10 years. My heart kind of like just sunk. Because everything he had to say was valid and good, but who's going to listen to this guy? Think about it. He's arguing that God created, and he's doing everything that we know as people that he's doing against God. Who's going to listen to this guy? How many times does it upset you when a politician gives you all these promises, and then they don't come true on them, Or a politician is involved with some kind of sex scandal or bribery? or some kind of other thing that's going on, and you're like, man, I don't like these politicians that we have right now. I don't, I'm not trying to get down on the United States, but right, we're one of the lowest ratings right now. Why? Is it just because of the economy? Or could it also be attributed to the fact that we don't feel like anyone can trust these people? And so they're saying one thing, but we've stopped hearing the message. Kent Hovind's saying one thing, but people are stopped hearing the message. We claim to have encountered a living God. And the world looks on and they say, these people are supposed to be changed. But I guess the question is, are they seeing anything? Are they seeing a difference in your and my life? Are they seeing a change? Maybe we say, you know what? Yeah, but you know, I got a group of friends and, and uh, they're going to just make fun of me. They're going to look on at me and they're going to think that I'm different. But let me say this. They may look at you see you as different, but that will never be the cause for them not coming to Christ. But if they look on at you and don't see the change, then they may never come to Christ. You see, the unchanged life may win friends, but it's not going to win souls. You know, the little thing that we compromise on, the thing that we're getting away with, you know, the cutting the corners when it comes to the law somehow... The exception we make when it comes to God's commands, our behavior, that one behavior thing that you think is hidden, it's going to come to light. Others are going to see it. They're going to look on and know that. And they're going to wonder is this what a Christian is? Is this what a Christian should be doing? Is this what your God does? You know, so many of us want to bring our friends to know Christ, don't they? Don't we? You guys got my email this week. And it's like one of the things that I think about a lot. I think about my family who doesn't know Christ. I think about my friends. I think about the people I encounter that I rub elbows with at work, whatever it is. I think about those people and I think I'd like them to know Christ. How? What can I do? And yet sometimes the biggest barrier to them coming to know Christ could be me or it could be you. It could be us. Listen, the best thing you could possibly do when it comes to influencing your friends to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, is to live a changed life. That is the biggest thing, along with sharing about why. Because when they don't see a changed life, they don't really care. Do you ever notice, even though you have a changed life, sometimes people alienate you, what happens when trouble comes? They come to you. They know where to go. They know where God can be found. Why? Because you're doing things right. You see, if you want to influence the people that you know, we have to get these three areas in our life in order. We've got to start doing things right. We have to start exhibiting the changed life. You know something? You might be the only person in your family who knows Jesus right now. You might be the only person in your job the only person among your friends, you might be the only example that they have and the only model to follow. When I was young, <coughs> I used to get a lot of Spider-Man comic books and uh, I love Spider-Man and I don't know, he was small, but he was courageous and I just liked him. So, man, I would practice my Spidey leaps and Spidey dodges when I was a kid. You know, I would try to climb walls to no avail. Man, I learned to do this long before Beavis and Butthead ever even had a clue. That's how Spidey slings his web. You know, that's the way it was. Why? I wanted to be a hero. Man, I wanted to use my powers for good. I wanted to use my powers to be an example, to protect people. And I think, to to be honest, I think all of us do somewhere deep down inside. All of us somehow want that. Because we want. Listen, when you go to watch a movie, how many of us want to be the hero and how many want to be the villain? Have you ever seen Star Wars? We want to be Luke Skywalker, or Obi-Wan Kenobi. We don't want to be Darth Maul. We don't want to be Emperor Palpatine. We don't want to be Jar Jar Binks. Well, he was good, but he was goofy. Listen, we don't generally desire to be the villain. We don't desire to be the bad guy. We desire to be the hero. We desire to be the one that makes the change, that does the right thing, that makes the right choice. We're looking for an ideal, aren't we? We're looking for an ideal. Someone that can be the model. Have you ever heard of the phrase knight in shining armor? You probably have, right? At least probably every woman has heard that term because that's the term we use for the woman. She's looking for the man to marry who is going to be her knight in shining armor, right? This knight in shining armor embodies everything that the woman wants in the man. That he's good looking. That he's got money. That he's kind. That he's virtuous. That he's handsome. I think I said that one. That he's, But he embodies everything that she wants. A guy who's loving. Who's going to open the doors for her. That's going to stand up for her. That's going to protect her. That's going to love her. And we say, the knight in shining armor, that's what we want. That's my ideal. That's what we want. We want a hero. Listen, I think it's really interesting the way this... Verses, is phrase, phrased in verse 12. Read it with me again from Romans chapter 13. It says this. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day. He's saying, listen, let's put on the shining armor. Let's start doing the good. Let's start being the model. Let's start being the ideal that people are looking for in their lives. You see, we have too few heroes, I think, in the world today. Too few people to model. And so I think the question for us today, too, is are you a model? Are you a model for your kids? Are you a model to your neighbor? Are you a model to your friends and family? Are you a model to the stranger that you pass on the street or that just cut you off on the highway? You know, people are looking for a role model. And can I tell you something? God is, too. In fact, God wants you to be a role model. I'm going to end with this verse. It says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to Him. This verse is saying, I'm looking for people that are going to do things right so that I can show myself strong on their behalf. Listen, if you're willing to live a changed life, God is willing to do something great with your life. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your Son that you came and sent to die for us, to pay for our sins, that you made a way that we could be with you forever. I thank you, Lord, that you filled us with your Spirit. Lord, that we might desire to do and live differently than we did before. And Lord, right now we're asking for your help to live a changed life. Lord, all of us need it, no matter where we're at. There are things that we struggle with and we fall sometimes. And Lord, we know that only you can help us. Lord, you've done all these other things and I'm confident, Lord, not just by this verse, but by the character of who you are that you'll do it again in our lives. Lord, I pray for everyone here. May this message sink into our hearts that we would desire to be a model and an example to those who are close to us. Lord, I pray that you bless everyone here today as we go. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.